friends, Greg Kokel here, and special off-schedule show today. Uh, that means no live calls, uh, though I really enjoy live calls. Actually, it's my favorite because we can interact personally a little bit. And if I have to work with you to kind of role-play an enterprise, that's convenient uh, for that kind of show. But when I'm off schedule, there's no way for you guys to know when I'm broadcasting, so you can't call in. What you can do, though is call in whenever you want and leave your question, in a sense, live to the recording. We call it open mic calls, and um, I have a whole list of them. It helps me on a slow day when nobody's around to actually call in on the regular show, but it really helps me in these fill-in days uh, that that I have uh, because, for whatever reason, my schedule takes me away from the mic on... uh, on my regular days. So um, we're going to do open mic calls today. If you would like to ask a question using the open mic feature, very easy. Go to the homepage, str.org, look under podcasts, go to live broadcasts, and there's a feature there. You can follow the prompts and do that. You can also phone in to for your open mic call, just a direct dial. And the number there is 857-DIAL. STR, 857-DIAL-STR, or by the numbers 857-342-5787. And then Amy will take your call and add it to the list. Boy, i got about five pages here. I could do weeks of programming. Uh, please um, accept my <clears throat> apologies for the delay of your particular question getting answered. It may be done here in the pile. But um, if it's one I think I can deal with, and every once in a while I see a question that, you know, I just I, I don't know that I can make a contribution here. And I think characteristically then, if I decide not to do a question, I think Amy gets back to the questioner. Is that right, Amy? If I choose not to do a question, you'll get back to let them know you don't do that. Okay. So they'll just think they were completely forgotten. Is that okay? Well, that's on you, (laughs) Amy. Oh, in any event, okay, I I can't get to everything. And it's not a time issue. That's not the point because I work through these. And I try to work with the oldest first. um, And... uh, and so if you've been waiting a while, you know, we'll eventually get to you. Do you call and let people know that we've actually done their thing? Okay, Amy does do that. So you call them with the good news, but not with the bad news. That's right. Okay. You're very brave, Amy. <laughs> Maybe it's a good policy. I don't know. But um, as uh, uh, and we, we'll eventually get to your call, but it may, it, it may be months. Um, I love this feature because it makes it so much easier for me to do my job. Uh, but it doesn't, and it also may be easier for you too in many ways because you you don't have to kind of get in, thread the needle time wise when I'm on live on the air, which we would be characteristically on uh, on a Tuesdays from four until six Los Angeles time. You know, it's funny when I give that time, Amy. I, I still I'm you hear me stop. You know, uh, 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 like I'm trying to remember. Because for like three decades, it was a different time and place or whatever. And uh, so a different phone number, too. And I'm still kind of got this mental muscle memory. And so, okay, what's the new thing? What's the new thing for the last five years? Uh, But anyway, Tuesdays, 4 to 6 p.m., L.A. time. And that's where you can call live. And chat with me then if you'd like to do that. All right, let's start with our first one. And... uh, 
Uh, Pam has uh, been, I've seen this question for a long time here, so I want to deal with it, about uh, uh, dealing how how I have, have an application of how I've uh, suggested responding if you have a, uh, a, a child that announces that they've they've come out as gay. Go ahead, Pam. Hi, Greg. I listened to the advice you gave to the caller who has a brother who recently came out gay. I was wondering if you would apply the same scriptures to a family member who started dating a Jehovah Witness. Our son has abandoned his Christian upbringing to follow the beliefs of the Jehovah Witness. We have provided guidance from Ron Rhodes, Melissa Doherty, you and others. Nothing has worked. Hmm. We have chosen to step back from the day-to-day involvement with him due to the heartache and many other obvious things. What would you consider to be the biblical response in this circumstance? Hmm. Thank you very much for your consideration of this question. Well, Pam, thank you for calling with this. And this is, I can just feel the anguish that uh, you and your family are, are feeling regarding this departure from classical Christianity uh, to uh, it, actually, it's a classical heresy. It goes back, you know, almost two thousand years. The particular understanding that Jehovah's Witnesses have about who Jesus is and the nature of salvation. Just as a side point, when you have aberrant groups that are in some way I, identified or associated with Christianity, that is, they use the Bible, they talk about Jesus, Jesus is in their theology in some fashion, um, and they may even think the Bible's fully inspired. They, In virtually every case, they have um, an additional source of authority, an additional source of authority. In this case, it's the Watchtower, or it could be the Book of Mormon, Pearl of Great Price, and uh, Doctrines and Covenants for LDS, but this is true with other teachings as well. And when there's a different source of authority, this different source of of authority always takes uh, precedent to the Bible. Even though, in a certain sense, lip service is given to the authority of Scripture, it is still—the Bible goes into the back seat. And when it appears to agree with this particular group, well, then it's (laughs) authoritative. But when it doesn't, it's the other documents that carry more weight with them. Uh, In the case of the— the Watchtower Society, they have a different translation, the New World Translation, and which in many places it's just fine, but in those places where it deals with the the two critical issues, and that is the person and the work of Christ, who is Jesus, and what did he come to do? <clears throat> in those areas, the verses that are relevant to our discussion are tampered with by New World Translation translators. I'm just, I'm just saying that. Um, and uh, it's common knowledge, and it's obvious when you look at a variety of different passages in question, in different translations, and they are all largely in agreement with little variations, you know, because that's the way translations work. But as to substance, it's there until you go to the New World Translation, and they just add words. And uh, to conform to their so th- to conform to their doctrine. So this is a tough issue. A, a tough thing for me to respond to is your part of your question, Pam. We said, <clears throat> would you apply the same approach that you talked about with the verses of a child who has started dating? I'm sorry, who has come out? A family member who has come out as gay. And uh, 
the difficulty is I can't remember what I said or what verses I used. Uh, my general um, uh, encouragement for a Christian family who child, whose child has come out as gay is is uh, to— um, and actually, Tim Barnett shared this just recently. It was a good summary um, in an event we had on Saturday together. Uh, first, don't freak out. Very hard to do. And uh, Don't freak out. Uh, secondly, express your love. Okay. Uh, thirdly, ask questions and listen. All right. And then another point he made was to make set boundaries. Um, and uh, this is going to differ with different people in that circumstance. But um, I have said in the past that I never make homosexuality an issue with a person who's gay with regards to the gospel. All right? The gospel is the gospel. If people who are straight need it, people who are gay need it. Gayness isn't the issue. It isn't the unforgivable sin. It may be an issue that stands between them and really considering the gospel, that may come out in conversation. Then you're gonna to have to deal with that. But so my 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 goal in dealing with somebody who in the family comes out as gay is to affirm love and acceptance of them, and actually not to. And I'm not sure now. I'm a little nervous about what I said in the past about this, but it's not to reject them from the family. There's no reason to reject them from the family any more than you would re- reject any other individual who is a non-Christian. Uh, that seems to be inconsistent with our confession of love for these people under any circumstance. Now, the, the boundary issue may be an issue, and so that might reflect um, uh, uh, things, you, uh, things you demand or, or restrict in terms of behavior in your household, or if they're a, a minor, you know, things that have to do with their, their other activities that reflect your concern and your responsibility to protect them while they are under your leadership and your protection. By the way, I don't, I don't, this is kind of a, a nice, a different way of saying, uh, hey, not in my house kind of thing. All right. But, but that's just a power move. And what we want to try to communicate with regards to those who, uh, have uh, in our in our family who who express that they have now become gay or they they are gay or whatever. Um, I think there are legitimate boundaries you can put on them, especially if they're minors. And and in that situation, it's the language I use in my own home situation. As long as you are under our care, uh, we are responsible for trying to do what's best for you, and therefore these boundaries are going to be in place while you're under our care, okay? That is the the right way to express it. You end up with the same thing, like I'm going to determine the boundaries and what's going to happen here, but it's not a power move, you know, my way or the highway, not in my house, okay? Those are deadly phrases. Rather, you couch it in terms of what ought to be the case, your concern for their welfare and the acknowledgement that you have responsibility at this stage in their life for that welfare. Now, there is, there's overlap in what I've just expressed about dealing with a uh, somebody who's come out um, gay in your family and someone who is a child or a, a, a yeah, well, when a child, I mean your your son or daughter. And it wasn't clear to me how old uh, Pam your son 
was when he made this decision. Um, I suspect he's a little bit older. And uh, I mean, maybe twenties or something, or maybe even older than that. Not a teenager, not a not a uh, um, you, know, uh, you know adolescent or something. You know, not a minor. Okay, um, th- this situation is a little bit different. Um, l- let me back up for a moment. When you're dealing with the homosexuality issue, you're l- dealing with a behavior that uh, becomes embedded in a lifestyle. Okay, when you're talking about like Jehovah's Witnesses, now you're talking about a theological issue. Of course, homosexuality has a theological ramifications, and so I'm I'm very concerned. If somebody wants to to go the gay route, all right, but don't claim to be a Christian, or don't claim that it's consistent within with Christianity. Progressive Christianity, of course, holds that to be the case, but not based on anything they find in the Bible. Which doesn't matter to them. Characteristically, progressive Christians see the Bible as very flexible. Sometimes it's it speaks truthfully, and other times it doesn't. And and this is my assessment. It just depends on their view of things and what's convenient for them. And so, for a lot of people, sexual celibacy of all sorts is inconvenient. So the Bible doesn't speak authoritatively on it. All right. Now, uh, I just what I would appeal to someone in that circumstance is. is it's just simply that this—you're not reading your Bible correctly. Um, you, you, it's better for you just to forget about the Bible if you're going to be committed to this lifestyle. Don't corrupt the Christian testimony to correspond to your behavior. Um, it's better for you just to say, I'm not a Christian, and I don't follow that book, than say— I am a Christian, I follow the book, and it doesn't mean what Christians have thought it meant for the last 2,000 years. Because that's not going to fly. You go back to the text, this is not a difficult issue. It is very straightforward. And so my, if I were to do a, make a, a theological point there with the gay Christian, so-called, would be don't, don't do that to the text. The text can't be twisted in that way. You want to follow your own thing? That's your business, but don't try to make it sound like it's Christian, because that's just not—that that doesn't have integrity, okay? So um, that's the, the theological element on that side. When it comes to Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, the theological element is front and center, and yes, it does result in behavior, but it's a different kind of thing. The behavior is following a religious view that is false to the text and to the to the man of history, Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, and um, it's what you've said, Pam, so far is that um, uh, you you've done your best with the resources that you have to uh, show that the the theological understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do of the Jehovah's Witnesses is just plain false. But it hasn't made a dent. And I'm not sure why that's the case. Um, It it strikes me that (laughs) there is no appeal of being a Jehovah's Witness over a classical Christian, if you understand classical Christianity accurately. It's a completely works-based salvation. It's a tedious life that the things that you have to do, knocking on doors day after day after day, 
in order to essentially in order to secure your salvation. I asked a Jehovah's Witness once, um, do I need to join your organization in order to be saved? By the way, that's a very fair question, because it it sounds this is what it sounds like they're asking you to do, join the organization. But also when you when you think about the claim, it it's it sounds odd. Salvation is based on Jesus, not on some organization. Now, I guess they'd want to say, but ours is the only organization who got Jesus right, and getting him right matters. Well, I agree with that. Getting him right matters. But when I asked it, that question, it gave him pause. And then he finally said, well, pretty much. <laughs> he was willing to admit that it's, it's technically possible to be saved without joining their organization, but unlikely. Now, this is odd, isn't it? Because the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16 asked the same question, essentially. What must I do to be saved? And Paul didn't say, um, join the Watchtower Society or join the Arians of their day, which really came a little later. Arius was 3rd century, 4th century, but uh, nevertheless, the idea was there. Some question about the identity of Christ, especially the divinity of Christ, the full divinity of Christ. He didn't say that. He just said, believe in what? The what? The Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. There's three things there. Jesus the man— Christ the Messiah, and the Lord. Not a Lord, not a noble guy, but the Lord, which was the most common characterization of Jesus in the New Testament times. He was the Lord. And if you look at Jehovah's Witnesses' texts, Isaiah 45-ish in there, you are my witnesses, and maybe 47, I think there's a couple passages there where they draw a lot of particulars about God being one, etc., and the one rock, and the one Savior, and the Lord. Yet here in the New Testament, Jesus is the Savior. He is the rock. He is the Lord. All the appellations characteristic of the God of the Old Testament, explicitly there, are explicitly being used in the New Testament of Jesus. But that's just another argument against their theology. And sounds like, Pam, you've done that to no avail. What now? And I would say, uh, I, I would encourage you to, in, to continue your relationship with your son in a normal fashion, in a, as a robust fashion as possible. And when, uh, if there's opportunity for <clears throat> a, uh, a conversation about spiritual things, and he's willing to have it, fine. Uh, be prepared for the kinds of claims they make. Do not worry about blood transfusions or army service or, you know, celebrating Christmas or, or all these other tangential, third-level, errant, in my view, or at least heterodox doctrines that the Jehovah's Witnesses have. It Those don't matter. What matters is the heretical understandings, the person and the work of Christ, and then broader, the question of authority, who gets to speak for God. <clears throat> and of course, it's the faithful witness, the Jehovah's Witness, that 
is they claim is the only one who could speak. But those any human witness has got to speak accurately about God. And God's Word is is not Watchtower Society. God's Word is God's Word. And if you can see God's Word and you are careful of understanding it, if any human being contradicts it, then that human being is mistaken in that particular case. And this issue is not that hard. In fact, in the Street Smarts book, uh, I deal with the person and work of Christ, challenges particularly to the deity of Christ, and some conversations that you can have, even one with Jehovah's Witnesses. And there's a, a very important argument I've offered before. I call deity of Christ case closed, but it's in John chapter 1, verse 3. And a little form you can, a little napkin presentation you can do if you'd like. And uh, just on the words that are virtually identical in the New World translation about Jesus essentially being the uncreated creator. Actually, it's the Word who became flesh, verse 14, but the Word is the uncreated creator. And so um, it's a very powerful argument and may get your son thinking, but it may not. They're, they're, they're in some, for some reason, a commitment to follow that doctrine. And you might want to ask them, why is it that you believe what you believe now as opposed to what you were raised to believe, given we both have the same Bible, more or less. New, New World Translation is corrupt, but never, nevertheless, there's, there's a fair point there. When I say corrupt, it's been changed. Not to reflect an adequate translation, an accurate translation of the original. In any event, just see what he says. Why have you changed it? Now, I suspect it's going to be doctrinal. Okay, at least that's what he's going to lead with. But it might be something else. I don't know. It's it's just hard to me to understand the appeal of the, <laughs> you know, Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. It's just, it's not appealing so he must be convinced for theological reasoning reasons to join an unappealing group. I'm not putting these people down, they're nice people, but you know, the system is not the kind of thing that most people want to buy into. I mean, Christianity, from the perspective of most people, is hard enough. Oh, man, that's a killjoy religion. Man, well, look at it, you ain't seen nothing yet with the Watchtower Society. And again, I'm not saying that they're mean or nasty people, but it's it's quite a rigid uh, enterprise that requires, a, 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 which is very demanding on each individual member. So, and knocking, you know, going door to door—that's that's no fun, especially when people see you coming and they're hiding in the closet or something. Don't answer the door. And uh, and if they do answer, then they get grief. It'd be interesting to ask your son. This is a good, this is, here's a question that maybe you can, it just occurred to me in this fashion, that you might ask your son, if he is a Jehovah's Witness, he's doing street evangelism or door-to-door evangelism, it's part of their program. Um, and uh, the question then is going to be, how many converts have you had, given the time that you've been out, however long that is, how many converts have you had? Now, this is this is an important question, I'll tell you why. Because the gospel is good news. The gospel is good news. And in fact, when John communicated the gospel in very direct terms, in almost kind of unfriendly terms, 
on Pentecost Sunday to that massive group of Jews assembled in that city for the High Holy Days, um, thousands responded, even though what he said at the end, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. Take that. (laughs) Well, um, thousands responded, and then a few pages later, thousands more responded. Why? Because the news was good news. If the news that Jehovah's Witnesses are communicating is so good, why aren't many people responding? Now, I, I understand in the environment we have people have lots of resistance even to classical Christianity, but there's a lot of people who are becoming classical Christians even so but not many becoming Jehovah's Witnesses. If the news is so good, why not? Um, so that's a question to ask. Maybe that'll put a stone in his, in his shoe. But let's just say, Pam, nothing works. No changes at all. Um, this young man's your fl- flesh and blood, your mom. He's got dad, you got a family. Families are meant to be safe places for family members, emotionally, especially, and um, I would, I would still make it a safe place. Seek to do that, even though uh, you understand that the spiritual road that he is on is, is destructive to him spiritually. Uh, you still have your own, in a certain sense, um, appropriate role in his life. Not the same, you know this as when he was a kid. If he's a young adult, well, young adults make their own decisions, and we can do what we can to talk with them as we're able, but uh, even so, people are individuals. And uh, it, it, do not instead of rejecting him, this is, I'd warn against that kind of thing, or isolating him somehow because of his theology. We don't do that. Unless they're inside the church, that's the key. No, he's not. He's left. When you have bad theology inside the church, immoral behavior inside the church, we deal with that. That's 1 Corinthians 5. But Paul explicitly says, I'm not talking to you about avoiding people who are outside of the church. Then we'd have to go outside of the world, and we belong in the world, and, and he's in the world at the moment, and he's your son, so you belong in his life. He, Paul says, I was talking to you about those so-called brothers who are A, B, C, D, E, and F, a bunch of nasties. Do not even eat with such a one. That's a very different kind of circumstance. So um, so I'd say your, your son is outside the church. He's not a Christian. You treat them, him like a non-believer. You, you don't uh, excommunicate him. He's already excommunicated himself. And so, but you want to have a role in his life because he's yours, and also because um, you can still have a salutary effect in his life. I have a feeling, especially if he's a young man, that being a Jehovah's Witness is going to get tiresome. And the reason is, is because it's not the truth. It's a legalistic religion, and legalistic religions are terribly destructive on individuals. So maybe that's something over time you'll be able to capitalize on, and certainly pray for him. All right. Pam, I hope that helps. God keep you. Let's take a break, and we'll come back with more of your questions. 
on Stand to Reason. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Alan, Tim, John, and I, Robbie Lashua, are available both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule us today. We can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read our bios and learn more about the topics we cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, John, or me, Robbie, today. Hey friends, would you like to be encouraged throughout your week with timely, relevant content meant to bolster your knowledge, wisdom, and character? Or maybe you have a desire to be connected with other like-minded Christians from around the world. If so, then you need to follow Stand to Reason on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Not only will you be able to interact with other Stand to Reason followers, but you'll also stay up to date and informed on our latest resources and events. In our current culture, it's important to have something of value to break up your social media feed. So just visit str.org and find the links to all of our social media platforms at the bottom of the homepage. It's always a liability when somebody says, you know that answer you gave about that other issue? <laughs> I think, what, what did I say? I can't remember. So um, this has actually happened more than once, and people have told me it was such a great response. It helped me so much. I said, what was your question? And they gave me the question, and I said, not only could I not remember what I answered that was so helpful for them, I'm, I'm glad that it was, but I can't even remember. I can't think about how I would respond <laughs> now. I, I got to listen to my own show more often. Maybe I'll learn something, or maybe I won't forget as much. Anyway, let's take the next one here. Um, uh, let's um, let's take Cole, okay? And uh, Cole called uh, his question, and I believe um, was well. I mean, let's just let Cole. Um, ask. Hey, Greg. Uh, my name's Cole. Um, just calling you uh, in regards to a question that I have. I'm wondering, uh, what was the plan for the Gentiles um, prior to Christ's execution? Um, like, was there a plan that God, you know, put in place for them for their forgiveness? Like, whereas, you know, the Gentiles, people who, let's say, were in Rome or Germanic Germany at the time, were they able to get any sort of salvation even after their death since they didn't have, you know, didn't live during the time of Christ? Or how about all the lives before, you know, those people who lived before Christ, mm-hmm. were, are they saved, you know? Uh, I'm just kind of curious. It's just kind of a question I've been thinking about for a while. Thanks. Bye. Cole, it's a great question. And there's, it just it, it touches on so many different issues, actually. You made the uh, comment about what about after death? Well, this is completely disqualified as an option given the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews says it is appointed to man to die once, 
and then comes the judgment. To die once, and then comes the judgment. And the judgment entails the second death, actually. But notice how that that doorway, that, that point of no return, seems to be um, death. And I'm qualifying it now because there's different ways of thinking about death with near-death experiences. I mean, dead as, an order, as a tornhill dead, like Jesus was for three days in the tomb, like, like um, uh, Lazarus was for three days in the tomb. You know, it's like, he stinketh, man, don't open that door. Yeah, that that kind of dead, not just kind of out for a while and the soul goes somewhere and then it comes back, you know. Um, that's the final portal. And after this, one's spiritual fate is sealed. Now, I know that people have suggested the possibility of having a second chance or something like this. And in fact, the LDS Church has developed an entire doctrine about that, and they've taken a verse from 1 Corinthians 15 that makes some vague um, or makes a, a a clear reference to a vague practice, and that is a baptism for the dead. And uh, then they think, well, there must be baptism for the dead that's legitimate. I think Paul was referring probably to a pagan practice, but nevertheless, they picked up on that. And I've had conversations with a close uh, family member on this issue, and it was really driven emotionally by the idea, well, what about those people who never heard? Or maybe didn't have a right environment uh, that made made the truth look appealing to them, or whatever excuses we make for them, and uh, and therefore now they've passed into a Christless grave, and there's there must be some other option for them, and uh, and so therefore the baptism for the dead is developed. Uh, doctrine there, and this is why they are very concerned about genealogies. They're going back in their family history, getting all these non-Mormon people in their lineage saved through baptism for the dead. That's the idea there. Um, But if you think about the sense of urgency of the gospel going out to all people, and the ways that the gospel is communicated, and the price that Christians for 2,000 years have paid, but particularly the disciples, because they were in a position to kind of clarify correct doctrine and understanding. You think of the price that they paid for this particular message. Paul said, if, if I'm preaching the law or whatever that you like, why, why am I still being persecuted? No, what I'm telling you is the truth— and the truth is what you don't like. And now I'm paying a penalty for that. Why would he do that? Because it mattered in this life. It mattered in this life to make this, uh, to, to make resolve this issue. Because after death, it was over with. So it wasn't just the writer of Hebrews. He said it in a plain way. But it's implicit in the intensity of gospel presentations ever since. This matters, okay? So, um, uh, and it was interesting, even Jesus gave the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You know, there doesn't seem to be any opportunity for a second chance after death. It's on this side, all right? Now, so that's just a part of, of your question, Cole. The other part has to do with what about those people that are still alive? and they haven't heard about Jesus. This is a little bit more complex, but I have to I have to start with some theology 
That's really important, okay? And here's the first piece of theology that's really important. God does not owe anyone salvation. He has no moral obligation to offer forgiveness. Notice the complaint is, well, these folks didn't hear about Jesus. And so you're saying now they're going to be damned forever? And the implication is they're being damned because of a a, 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 a geographical idiosyncrasy or a time idiosyncrasy. They happened to be in the wrong place or and or at the wrong time so that they didn't get the message that if they had believed it, they would go to heaven. And so the message that we speak, it, it seems bar- bizarre because it leaves out all of these people who, watch this, through no fault of their own, are going to hell. Well, this is because people don't understand the calculus. And part of that calculus is God owes no criminal a pardon. So I just changed the language, didn't I? I put it in a modern context so that you can to, to, to stimulate an intuition. Does the governor owe guilty people pardons? No, of course not. If he if he pardons one person, does that mean he's got to empty the jails? No. All right. Now, I want you to employ that insight in terms of God's justice. And by the way, God's justice is perfect. Human justice isn't, but God's is. And he certainly is in a position to offer a pardon if he wills, but he doesn't have to do that. There was no pardon that was offered for fallen angels. None. Okay. Um, In our case, we're fallen humans. We are part of that race of humans who have consistently rebelled against God. Why would God owe us a pardon? Well, because he loves us. Okay, well, why would you opt for the love of God being the one thing that overwhelms everything and is the decisive factor in everybody getting the gospel, and not the justice of God being the one thing that overwhelms the decisive factor that overwhelms the other things? Could be either. God would be fully justified in punishing everybody, just like the angels that fell, or, you know, so that complaint works both ways. The fact is God has chosen a middle ground, and that is to demonstrate grace that was not deserved to some, and to demonstrate justice to, uh, to, to others, which is deserved. So you have to get this down first off, that people do, are not owed in any—well, people are not owed a chance at forgiveness. And on my view, and I've had these discussions with other people even on this program, with Cade, for example, and some of you might remember those conversations, doesn't God's love compel him to save as many people as possible? And even though grace is unmerited favor, it's above and beyond, but maybe the fact that he's, he's, grace is not uh, required, but doesn't love require the giving of grace? Well, it strikes me if love requires it, then it's changes the nature of grace, because now it's obligatory, but I don't even think love makes it obligatory, because you could just as easily argue on the other side, wait a minute, what, isn't justice obligatory? Why does love have to be obligatory? It, both are elements of God's character. So um, so I, I, what God has chosen is a, like a, a middle ground, 
where he, sh- he, he demonstrates love towards some people by giving grace they did not deserve, but he manifests his justice towards others by giving them justice which they do deserve. Okay, now how does he figure that out? How does he decide that? Well, different, your theology is going to determine. Other theological concerns are going to uh, determine your answer to that question, but it, to me it's, it's uh, I just go with this, Ephesians chapter 1, according to the kind intention of his will according to the kind intention of his will. God knows we don't, and he sees all of these things that we don't. We, we, we have very, very limited understanding. We look at life through a keyhole, as it were. This is Os Guinness's illustration. Uh, we just see this little piece through the keyhole. We don't see the big picture that God does, and that influences his decisions. We go back to what the Scripture says. Now, here's where another text that relates to this. Now, Paul is writing to the Ephesians. The Ephesians are Gentiles. And he said, you were dead—this is chapter 2, the first few verses—you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience and um, indulging in the flesh, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And he's referring to the rest of the Gentiles. And there's another aspect. I'm, I'm actually looking for the phrase, which I can't find at this moment, but I think it's in the same passage. You were without God and without hope in the world. That is, there was no covenant that was made for Gentiles. There were covenants that were made for Jews. Now, keep in mind, it wasn't that God was playing favorites. He made covenants with the Jews to be able to reach the Gentiles. That first covenant being the most important one, the Abrahamic covenant, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that's really critical. It is that that God does have the, the, the goyim, the nations, the families of the earth in view. And it's through the agency of the Jews. And in fact, Ephesians chapter 2 goes on to explain how the dividing wall of the, of the law has been broken down and made the two into one new family. It's in the body of Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, male or female, slave or free. There's an egalitarian element with regards to salvation and value and etc. in the body of Christ. But there's an acknowledgment that outside of God's covenant purposes, there is no salvation. God is a narrow God, and by the way, he has been from the very beginning. Now think of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other God before me. That's narrow. And there's lots of other examples of that. Now this does raise the question of the, the justice or fairness regarding those who never heard the gospel. And this is something that Paul speaks to in Romans chapter 1. Now, I, I'm, I'll say in a kind of very direct answer to your question, um, what about Gentiles? Could Gentiles be saved? Well, the answer is yes, and we have examples of that. Jethro, who is Moses' father, was not a, 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 he was not a Jew, obviously, but he might, some semi, whatever, he's in that region, but he, um, he, he understood the true God. Um, Job understood the true God. Now, Job may be Midrash, may be a it's poetry, so it may not have really happened. It expresses true things about God. But in any event, you have this person who is not 
Jewish, nor, you know, his friends, they don't have Jewish names. Maybe one does, but this is not a Jewish community. This is every man, so to speak, and uh, yet he is a, a righteous man before the true God. And uh, without my flesh, I shall see God. You know, he believes in the resurrection, and uh, he's not going to curse God and die as his wife suggests. So here's a non-Jew that uh, a couple of them now, including Jethro and, and others that Melchizedek, who I, I think was an actual historical person, but he was a type of Christ. And yet here is a guy who's a high priest of of the true God, and yet he's not a Jew. So there are, certainly are uh, occasions when Gentiles can attain, prior to the New Covenant inauguration, which was the way your question was worded, the crucifixion of Christ and subsequent giving of the Spirit, <clears throat> excuse me, in Pentecost, um, there were people who, who actually be, were, were were saved, you know, to use that religious word, but they, um, but not most of them, the rank and file were not saved. Well, that's not right. What do you mean that's not right? Well, they never had a chance, really. Well, that isn't what Paul thinks. Romans one, and here in the in famous passage, referring to general revelation, natural theology, if you will. And we have Paul making opening chapter, last half, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So here is mankind characteristically suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, and God. this makes God's mad, God mad. Now notice suppressing. It isn't that they weren't given the truth. They given the truth and they suppressed it. Well, when, when were they given the truth? Keep reading. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. That's interesting. For God made that evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So now there's a twofold aspect. There is something inside of them that testifies to the true God, and something outside of them that testifies to the true God. But what do they do with that? They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And what is the consequence of suppressing that? They are without excuse. They're guilty. They are without excuse. They're not going to be able to stand before God and say, we didn't know enough. You did know enough. That's Paul's claim. And uh, had they heard had they heard about Jesus? No, they didn't reject Jesus. No, they rejected the Father. The message about Jesus is 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 um, in a sense localized. The message about the Father is universal. And if they reject the general message of the Father, evidence revelation of the Father, why why would there be any reason for the Father to give them more revelation about His Son when they're already rejecting Him. And so then this leads, to, as a consequence, to the great white throne judgment of all of these people, these multitudes. And this is a, the third important theological point that um, you, you need to see. The first one was, nobody deserves, is owed forgiveness. The second one is actually God has revealed himself to everybody, and the response is rejection of the truth, suppression that makes them guilty. And the third thing is that's the reason they're punished. 
it's the actions, the 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 sinful actions and behaviors that they were held accountable for for at the great white throne judgment. Because the books are open, I call them the books of death in um, a story of reality. And in this book are the list of their crimes against God. It's their rap sheet, and they respond. Uh, the, the, Jesus responds by because he's the judge by looking at the crimes and then judges them according to their works. So this is the third really important point. Nobody goes to hell because he didn't receive Jesus. Because then you wonder, well, how could he receive a Jesus that he didn't hear of? They go to hell because of the crimes they've committed against God. Jesus is the solution. He's not the problem. And we see it very clearly there in Revelation 20. The crimes they commit against God are enumerated, and they are held responsible for them. And everyone whose name is not listed in the book of life is thrown into the lake of fire. In other words, everyone so judged by their works will be found wanting and punished. They are without excuse. So our soft hearts often goes out to these all these people all over the world that never heard of Jesus, and when we wonder how could this view that we have, exclusivistic view, be coherent? And the answer is, well, it can be coherent because it is coherent. As long as you understand those three points of biblical doctrine, which shows that lots of times hard questions could be resolved theologically by a proper understanding of the biblical teaching. No one is owed salvation, first. Secondly, human beings uh, are, are shown the Father and suppress that truth with unrighteous motives to do their own thing. And then the rest of the chapter talks about that, Romans chapter 1. And as it turns out, human beings will be judged properly and justly for that, not for rejecting Christ. That's like saying somebody died because he didn't go to the hospital. No, he died of whatever was killing him, the cancer, the whatever. The hospital is the solution, not the problem. And the same thing here. Jesus is the solution. But if a person chooses not to go to the hospital and not to get care, even though they have a deadly disease, well, then they die of their deadly disease. And so there's an analog here that might help you understand that. So anyway, I hope that, uh, Cole, I hope that... Um, that helps. There, there are people in the in way out in the hinterland, you know, that uh, appeal to God for the right reasons with a with a, a a repentant heart about the sins they've committed, you know, and and this genuine appeal to God is is met by God with uh, a display of revelation, generally through someone. You can read stories about this in a book, um, Don Richardson's Eternity in Their Heart. It's pretty cool. Happens. But it's rare. Most of the time, God just lets people go and follow their own way, and then he judges them. And there are times when he intervenes. Why? Because he's gracious. Why not everyone? I don't know. That's God's business. All right? Now, we have just a few more minutes left. Um Let's just do Rob from Indianapolis, and uh, we'll see if I can kind of get a quick answer here before <laughs> I turn into a pumpkin here. Hey, Greg, this is Rob calling from Indianapolis. Hey, um, I'm, I see a lot of people wearing shirts that say protect trans kids. 
And like you, I like to kind of engage people with some questions about what they mean by that using the mm-hmm. first Columbo Good. step. Um, but I have some ideas of where I'd go um, with that more specifically. And I'm curious to know how you would address somebody wearing that shirt. What, what part of that shirt would you focus on? And what would be your goal in engagement uh, with somebody wearing a shirt that says protect trans kids? I look forward to hearing that, hopefully on the radio one day. Thanks a lot. And hello to Amy as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm glad for Amy as well. Thank you, Rob, for that. And quickly, uh, actually, every word in that is operative. Okay. Protect trans kids. Okay. Um, Protect. What do you mean? Protect them. I think we should protect trans kids. Okay, but people have a different understanding of what would protect them. So what would protect them? Now, I know what they mean. That means being uh, gender-affirming and uh, trans-affirming. And Okay, well, wait a minute. Okay, and I'd want to trade a little bit on this the implicit admission that something is wrong. It's actually more than implicit. When somebody says, I'm a woman in a man's body, that's not implicit. It's explicit. There's a mistake here. Something has gone wrong. My body does not match my mind my, what they call now, gender identity. Okay, so there's something wrong there. We all admit this, and I maybe toy with that. So something is wrong. So what is wrong? That's, there's a question. What is wrong? We can't protect trans kids unless we know what the danger is that we're t- protecting them from. So what is the danger? I mean, this is one of those sentences, protect trans kids, it has great rhetorical power, but I'm just interested in clarifying. the What do you mean by that question? I think it's totally appropriate here, but it, it really needs to be applied to every one of those words. What are we protecting trans kids from? Now, I know what they mean. We are protecting them from those people who don't want to encourage their dysphoria or encourage their transgender um, solution to their dysphoria, all right? And um, that's what they want. They they want to protect trans kids from us and partly maybe protect from themselves. That is, they feel dysphoric, and that puts them in a bad situation, and so they are suicidal, and the only way to protect them from their own suicidal tendencies given their tra- dysphoria is to give them what they want change their body so they look like what they feel like. Um, Just so you know, that doesn't change things for them. Uh, Suicide rates, and this is in the, uh, footnoted in the, uh, what was that book you wrote? I can't remember the name. Street Smarts. Okay. In the Street Smarts book, um, that suicide rates are 20 times the national average. Oh, well, that's because of all your Christians dissing trans kids. No, it's not. These were the figures from Sweden, where they're very sanguine about this kind of thing. The point I'm making is there's something—well, the question is, is my body wrong or is my mind wrong? The body looks fine. It's the mind that's wrong. If you want to protect trans kids, then you deal with their misdirected identities. But of course, the word identity is kind of an idol now. It's like the that's what matters. Their identity want them to be authentic self. I don't want them to be authentic. I want them to be healthy. I want to protect them. I want them to be safe. This authenticity business is used to justify all kinds of dangerous things for young people, especially. And that's the kids part. See, it it it's we want to protect and trans. What's a trans? Well, this is where they believe one thing, 
about themselves, but their body says another. Wait a minute. You're talking about, do you realize how many people think they're trans that if they're not encouraged to have body parts removed, will change their mind in a few years? That number is legion. And even who those who have their body parts removed, mutilated, change their mind. And now they're starting to sue, appropriately in my view, because this happened when they were kids. Protect trans kids. And sometimes without mom and dad's permission or even information, they're given drugs and they're queued up for, okay, we're on the fast track for surgery. It's crazy. You know what? I believe in protecting trans kids. But that's because I, I'm, I'm convinced that being trans may be transitory in kids' minds and the best thing to do to protect them is to move them towards mental health so their mind matches the natural body they were given. Instead of mutilating their body, you heal their minds. Hope that helps. Rob from Indianapolis. Greg Kokel here for Stand the Reason. Give them heaven.